The second lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. And before I read the text, I want to, for those who were here to hear the introit this morning, that was written by our own Becky Ruffin. And she really set the stage for what it is that we're going to be hearing today in this second lesson. So if you can remember that introit, maybe some of that will be sort of lingering in your mind as you hear the word of the Lord. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. And when the whole crowd saw him, they were immediately overcome with awe And they ran forward to greet him, and he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you I brought you my son, he has a spirit that makes him unable to speak, and whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. He answered them, You faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you are able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you are able, all things can be done for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You spirit that keeps this boy from speaking and hearing, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he was able to stand. When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind can come out only through prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, there's a lot going on, obviously, within our country and within our world, but today I want to pause for a second and recognize that we, as a culture, should take a moment 
to both mourn and celebrate the life of the great Billy Graham. Billy Graham died this last week in his home in North Carolina. And though many of us might feel at odds with the persuasion of his son, or maybe we don't, the life of Billy Graham is not to be lost or ignored in the middle of all of the things that we find ourselves in now. Billy Graham built his life and his legacy on this idea that the human being needed not just to be helped, not just to be fed, not just to be housed, but that the human being actually needed to be in relationship with God. That's the cornerstone of the life and the ministry of Billy Graham at its core root. And he offered his life and his ministry to make it so that many people would have an opportunity to come into relationship with Jesus to pay attention to that voice that existed that told them, come, I love you, I want to know you. Now our text today, I'm going to bring these two things together towards the end, but I want you to know that our text today comes with sort of this same idea. It comes with a search of healing, physical healing, but as we make our way through this text today, we are going to realize that the physical healing is actually somewhat connected, or actually in this particular context, we would see directly connected to the spiritual healing that needs to take place within this particular family. We enter this text with a child who is suffering and hurting, it seems needlessly. This particular spirit has been with him since he was a child, and it is not right, and it is set up shop within his life, and actually within the Greek part of this text, we see that this spirit has actually destroyed this little boy. He suffers, he foams at the mouth, he grinds his teeth as if he's dead, The text that you have says that he becomes rigid, but when you read it in Greek, it actually suggests a little bit more that there's a death that has entered into him. And the father has tried everything, and nothing is working. Nothing is healing him. Nothing is making him better. And so he comes to the disciples of Jesus asking for healing, but they can't do it. They can't do it. And it's interesting when there's a few words for power in Greek. One is dynamos. That has to do with capability. It has to do with the ability that one finds within oneself. That's not the word that the writer uses when he says they were not able. It's not that they didn't have power. It's a different word. They did not have the ability to resist. There's something that they had to actually confront, and they did not have the ability to resist that which they needed to confront. They cannot prevail against this particular spirit. They don't have the strength for the necessary resistance. There's something that the disciples, it turns out, are lacking on the inside. 
So the father approaches Jesus and asks him, if you are able, please have compassion and rescue us. That's that word, rescue. It actually is a military word. It's used when somebody is stuck within a deep conflict in battle and and somebody would come in and rescue that individual. And that's the word that the Father uses. Rescue us. We're dying here. There's something that is too big that we cannot combat on our own. Now, this to me seems like a normal request. And if you turn back earlier in the pages in the gospel, you'll notice that when something like this happens, that Jesus is often very calm in the way that he responds. But in this particular instance, Jesus is a little bent out of shape about this request. This is one of those times where you have to pay attention to where you are within the context of the gospel. And one of the questions that I always ask myself is, am I at the beginning or am I at the end? Am I at the place where he's initiating his ministry or am I at the place where he's getting ready to wake his way into Jerusalem? Now, after the transfiguration, where are we going? We're always on the way to Jerusalem, right? That's the story of Lent. We're on our way to Jerusalem. Why is it important to know that? Because the way that Jesus interacts with people once he's on that particular road to Jerusalem is always different. In every gospel, it's always different. There's a little bit more at stake. There's a little bit more that he has to negotiate. And there's the reality that it's going to be over very soon. So now Jesus is in this point in his ministry where he's more interested in seeing how faith develops. He doesn't just want the people around him to bear witness to his healing acts. He wants them to start to put their weight down on what he's doing. To have faith in the fact that God will be faithful to God's promises. He wants the people, all of these folks that he's around right now, the people, the crowd, the disciples, the scribes, the Pharisees, he wants them to begin not just to see, but to believe. To make that transition between witnessing what is happening and letting that connect with their inner being so that they start to put their trust in the trustworthiness of God. And of course, as Jesus discovers, that is very hard to find. Hard to find in the first century, hard to find today. When we look out at what seems like an impossible reality, how do we put our trust in the trustworthiness of God? That's the story of the Father in our text today. And it seems that what Jesus is asking for is not necessarily rational. It's not an immediate sort of logical choice for this particular father to just notice that, okay, Jesus is here, everything is going to be fine. What Jesus is asking for is a radical step of courage that claims that God is indeed actually for the world. 
And as we look out on our world today, and as you could see how maybe put yourself, put your feet within the feet of this father whose son had suffered since childhood, you could see how sometimes that is absolutely one of the hardest things that we can be called to do. To believe that God is indeed for the world. And Jesus doesn't get that. Not in this particular instance, with this particular father. The sentence that I want us to notice in particular is the one where the man then says to Jesus, if you are able, rescue us, rescue. And Jesus then returns and has this very interesting interaction with the man. He says, if you are able. Now, there's some judgment that's wrapped around that in the English translation. But really, Jesus is just asking, if you are able. He's sort of turning it back, saying, if you are able. And then he uses that same word, and he says, all things are able. It's the same exact word that the man uses. All things are able for the one who is having faith. See, belief and faith are the same word in the New Testament. One just has is a noun, the other is a verb, but they're the same exact word. We get them translated two different ways. But what Jesus is saying is all things are able for the one who is having faith. The one who is able to take that radical step of courage to say, somehow in spite of all the odds, I believe that God is for the world. And then the man has this very intense moment. And he cries out. He says, I believe. There's this moment in the present tense. I believe, he says. Or the other way that you could translate it is, I am having faith. And then he says, he cries, rescue. Please rescue the unfaith of me. That becomes the pivot point within the story. Rescue the unfaith of me. Now, why would this matter for the health of the boy? Why would the father's cry, the father's struggle, the father's spiritual battle matter for the health of the boy? In this particular text, the healing of the child is actually connected to the spiritual guts of the Father. Why would Jesus push it this far is one of the questions that I have for this story. Why would he make this man who has already suffered so much within his life come to sort of this pivot point in order to find spiritual traction in his conversation with Jesus? Why does Jesus push him to this place? Because in this text, healing and prayer and new life springs from nothing else than the relationship with God. It doesn't come from the crowds. It doesn't come from the arguments of the Pharisees and the disciples. It comes from this raw and radical interaction between man and Jesus himself. 
It springs from the struggle to find God in the place of the man's deepest longing and deepest pain. And in that place, he cries out from his very internal sort of guts to say, I am having faith. Rescue the unfaith of me. And in that moment, everything changes. You see, sometimes we have to clear it all away. We have to get to the place of the actual wound and have our wrestling with God there in that space, in that raw reality. And that's the place that this man, that this father takes us to. He takes us to the wrestling of prayer. The deepest pain, the deepest longing, and in that space to have the bold-hearted courage to go to that place and claim two things, your own brokenness and your own hope. And that's what the man claims in this conversation with Jesus. He claims his own brokenness and he claims his own hope. I am having faith, he says, Help the unfaith of me. And that is what Jesus says at the end of this story is prayer. And it is through prayer that the real healing in this particular family life can begin. Now the crowd sees what happens in the healing and they call it death. They say, no, the child is dead. And often, that is what healing looks like. Real healing rarely first emerges as normal life. When we get to the end of our rope and when we look straight into our hope and our brokenness, even when Jesus is right there touching the boy himself, it still looks just like death. And it takes that other moment where Jesus takes his hand and he raises him up. He wakes him up, is the other word that we get from Greek. He raises him, he wakes him. And then that moment becomes the distinction between the life before the healing and the life after. And the disciples have an honest question. They say, why couldn't we do this? Why couldn't we do it? Prayer, Jesus says, this kind only comes out through prayer. See, prayer and life are connected. Prayer and healing are connected. Prayer and relationship are connected. Our relationship with God, our prayers, they affect our loved ones around us. That doesn't mean we always get what we want. See, that's the mistake that we often make with prayer. We think that prayer is like wishing. It's not wishing. It's wrestling. It's struggling. It's coming to terms with our own brokenness and our own hope. To go to the place of our deepest need and there to yell out to God. That is the space, the traction, in which physical life is altered. 
You know, sometimes we also get confused about the language of prayer. We think that prayer means having our lives together, knowing what to say, knowing how to talk to God, getting all of the words right. Or we think that prayer means that we're spiritual giants. Or that perhaps only spiritual giants are those who can lead us in prayer. Friends, I don't believe that that's what this text is leading us to say today. This text is about regular old families, regular old people, who are honest about their shortcomings and their hopes and their sufferings, and who are willing and who have the courage, I will say, to bring this into their conversation with God. And this then becomes the life of prayer. The Washington Post published an article about Billy Graham this week. There's been a lot of articles that have been published and The Washington Post made an attempt to reconcile the Billy Graham of our nostalgia and the Billy Graham of real life. And part of that reconciliation had to do with an interview with Ruth Bell Graham, uh, Billy Graham's uh, daughter, who um, had one of the best ways of talking about her family in a very real way. You see, this was a family that there was a lot of pressure on. This was a family that had to live up to unrealistic expectations about what it meant to live in the world as followers of Jesus Christ. And the reality is that this family was just a regular old family trying to get it together to make it one more day. And so, as Ruth Bell Graham reflects on her life, she says this. There was no, or actually this is the writer interviewing her, but there's a quote in the middle, which I will alert you to. She says, there was no question her father loved them, but his ministry was all-consuming. Quote, we have coped, she said. We have not rejected them or Christ. We're all involved in some form of ministry. We have done well at living up to people's expectations, but it is a burden. We were not a perfect family, and I am tired of people saying it. I don't want to be indiscreet, but God inhabits honesty, and I'm not good at image management. Ruth Len later goes on to reflect on the divorce that she experienced within her life and how that impacted her father's ministry. She said, at first I resorted to my familiar pattern of denial, Covering over my hurt with spiritual platitudes. I prayed, I fasted, I forgave, I claimed Bible promises. I did all that I had been taught to do, but I also hid my problems from everyone, humiliated that others, especially my family, would find out. She goes on to say that when she finally had the courage to move through with her divorce, she realized that in hindsight, it was barely a blip on the radar screen. And now she reflects in this way. She has used her experiences to communicate the truth that even the most famous Christians are not exempt from the problems that trouble the most people. 
quote, we all, she said, still have to work through the mess and the muck of life. You can't just slap a Bible verse over a wound and expect it to heal, end quote. Friends, our text today does not invite us to minimizing prayer in that way. It invites us to actually bringing the raw reality of our brokenness to the person of Jesus, to lay it down there with all of its strange sentence patterning. I believe, rescue my unfaith, my unbelief. This is the season of Lent, and we continue to be invited into the world of prayer. Let us not mistake prayer for wishing. Let us not mistake prayer for spiritual platitudes. Let us instead have the courage to engage in the reality of what prayer invites us to, and to see how then that might change the physical reality of our lives. Let us pray. O Lord, we come to you with words that we know are not enough. There's things that are within our guts that we can't even figure out how to say. And later on within the space of our service, give us time. Let your spirit draw those things out so that we can each cry out to you in the way that we need to, so that you may heal us. In Jesus' name. Amen.